Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to the next interview of Space 3D's second season. I am Eleanor Rangers, one of your co-hosts, and today we are going to introduce Rand Simberg, who Tom Hill and I had an opportunity to chat with in mid-November. Self-described as a recovering aerospace engineer, Rand has had a long tenure in the space industry. He worked for the Aerospace Corporation and Rockwell International, and in 1993, he transitioned into consulting in space technology business development, and regulatory and market issues related to commercial and personal spaceflight. Rand has some very specific opinions regarding the current state of space exploration, a term he hates, incidentally, and believes that a fascination with Apolloism, a term he created, coupled with an oppressive obsession with safety, have effectively served to stifle true development of the space frontier. The discussion is wide-ranging, but a fascinating and, at times, provocative one. Here is part one of our interview with Rand Simberg. Hello, everyone. Tom Hill here. It's another episode of Space 3D. We've got Eleanor as well. Emily isn't with us tonight. We have an excellent guest with us. His name is Rand Simberg. Now, Rand and I have been talking to each other on and off online for a couple decades now. And he's the first person I know of who describes himself as a recovering aerospace engineer. I, for one, don't have a problem and can quit anytime I like. He's worked in the aerospace industry for companies for quite a while, and he's also been working on his own. He worked for the Aerospace Corporation in El Segundo and at Rockwell International in Downey. But since he left Rockwell in 93, he's been a consultant in space technology and business development. He's held multiple engineering degrees from the University of Michigan and a master's degree in technical management from West Coast University in Los Angeles. He's written articles all over, such as Popular Mechanics, Fox News, USA Today, JAMA's Media, National Review, The New Atlantis. But the reason we brought him here is a book that he wrote several years ago. I don't remember exactly, but he'll go into that, where he takes a a rather unique view on our space program. It'll be an interesting discussion. Good evening, Rand. How are you doing today? I'm good. Cool. So as a getting all the information out there ahead of time, I actually was a supporter of Rand when he wrote this article. It started as a paper that turned into a book. And Rand, let's just get out there and give us the title. Oh, boy. <laughs> let's see, do I have a copy here? The, the safe is not an option is the title, but, the, but I can never remember the subtitle. I mean, I can, but it, uh, yeah, it's, it's dumb that I don't have a copy in front of me. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I've got a bunch of them, you know, all over the place. But there's one actually just across the room. Um, but it's basically, it's how, how our... Uh, Futile attempts to get everyone back alive is killing our progress in space. It's something like that. Okay. Well, I can read it right here. It's overcoming the futile obsession with getting everyone back alive that is killing our expansion into space. I told there we you. Go. I told you it was uh, not 
not what you normally hear and that sort of thing. So the safety is not the highest priority. As if safety is the highest priority, you don't go anywhere. Right. You don't get out of bed. Right. Right. And even things can bad things can happen in bed. I've seen those new uh, buildings that they're hyping that are earthquake proof that supposedly will keep you safe in an earthquake. I don't buy it, but, you know, that's the way they're hyping things nowadays. Well, you know, a, a meteor meteorite could come through the roof and hit you in bed. That's true. That's true. So what was the spark that that drove you into this line of thinking, Rand? Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I, I guess what really prompted it was the coming age of commercial spaceflight, human, you know, commercial human spaceflight. And my concern that whatever safety you know, criteria NASA came up with, we're going to bleed over into commercial regulation. So that was my, my biggest concern. My, my secondary concern is, was the fact that, you know, we're not making any much progress in space. And one of the reasons is, is safety. And, and, you know, the, the shuttle, a point I make about the shuttle was, um, and again, this, this is provocative, but the problem with the shuttle wasn't that it killed astronauts. The problem with the shuttle was that it lost, we, we killed shuttles. We lost two vehicles and we had a, only had a small fleet, and it just wasn't practical to keep doing that. You cannot have a reusable vehicle that costs a billion dollars or more, two billion really, each one, I think, in current year dollars, um, and lose them. You can't afford, you just can't afford to do that. I mean, astronauts are, pardon me, a dime a dozen. There's, we have plenty of astronauts. We have plenty of places to get new astronauts. There's plenty of people who would be willing to sign up. There are plenty of people who would be willing to fly the shuttle if it was still flying today. You know, and they're they're doing it to be completely informed consent. But we we just could not afford to keep flying that vehicle. But they create this whole safety culture at NASA, uh, where safety became literally you'd have Congress people, you know, Shaka Fatah, who was uh, I don't know if I can't remember if he's a ranking member or he might have been. He was anyway. He was on one of the space committees. So Congressman Philadelphia, no longer in Congress. But uh, on the penultimate, as the second-to-last shuttle mission, he told Charlie Bolden, "I'm glad that you made safety the highest priority for this flight." And you know, whenever time I hear that, it just steam comes out of my ears because it's just what it says. The, the basic message of my book is that the reason we obsess so much about safety in space is that we don't really believe that space is important. Right. If something was really important, it would be worth human life. You don't take yeah. it lightly, but you accept that it's a possibility. Yes. And it's, there's no one size fits all. It depends on the mission. I think um, one of the reasons I think people are upset about Columbia was that there was perception, correctly or otherwise, that the reason they were up there was to do kids' science fair experiments, because that was you know kind of a major part of the, of the PR about the mission. And so people said, why did we just kill seven people to do kids' science fair experiments? Yes, fun with was urine, that, I believe, was one of them. Yeah, I don't recall, but, but you know, so that, that was kind of the reaction. And it, as I say, it's, it's, uh, it's a testament to how unimportant we think sending humans into space is. So now and in it, response to this, you said, let's look at some other things that we realized were important and accepted that there'd be a loss of human life. What were some examples of what you came up with? Oh, well, one example I came up with, I discovered in the process of researching the book, was that between uh, 1947, I think, when the first jets were introduced to carriers, and 1985 or so, when we had the Hornet and the Tomcat, and we'd kind of figured out how to do that, 
the Navy finally got their accident rate down to so it was equivalent of of land based aircraft. That is, they got their accident rates down to Air Force levels. And in that period of time, we lost about eight thousand carrier crew, both you know flight crew and and people on the deck. And if each one of those had made some sort of headline when it happened, it uh, it could have driven something another way. But the fact that we considered it important, the accidents made news, but it wasn't the be-all, end-all of everything. Right. And, in fact, the Maxis, most of the accidents never even made news. You know, it was, that was, it was routine on a carrier occasionally to lose, lose an aircraft or to, or to injure, you know, deck crew. Yeah. That I, was just accepted. I actually and, have and, a uh, friend who I work with now who was a uh, naval aviator, and he said that he that was part of his training, how things had gotten standardized through the 70s and finally brought that accident rate down. They said, hey, you've got a good chance of making commander now. Yeah. And, and, and of course, we have the world example from uh, World War II, where we sent all those bombers out over Europe, you know, and... I don't remember exactly what the acceptable casualty rate was, but it was something on the order of, you know, you didn't, ex- you, you expected uh, some significant number of those crews to not come back. Yeah, the 8th Air Force suffered some of the largest percentages of uh, casualties of any unit. So so my point was that, you know, the, that, the carrier thing, 8,000 personnel killed over that 40-year, four-decade period, uh, that's the kind of thing that a country does when something's important. And when it's not important, you you don't fly unless it's perfectly safe, even though perfectly safe is not an achievable goal. Right, right. And then I think you also got into um, things about like a ship, that if a ship is damaged, the crew has to stay with that ship. Yes, and a sub, you know, you sacrifice yourself. Well, and not, just, not a sub, any ship, but you, you, sac- you, know, you sacrifice yourself to save the ship. And yet, right just recently... A few weeks ago, we had a Soyuz problem, and we said, and there, NASA was seriously considering abandoning a hundred billion dollar space station because they were afraid, you know, there would be some risk to crew because they, you know, they, they didn't know how they're going to change out the next crew if we don't have Soyuz. And of course, we've been chicken poop about being willing to fly people on American vehicles, and that's the only reason we're not flying on American vehicles, you know, which could bring us to the latest. Uh, stupidity today the latest version of this the latest version of this you know which is that uh because elon you know smoked a joint in public now nasa wants to do a new safety review of spacex i hadn't heard it quite put that way but i uh i it makes perfect sense in a in its own twisted way so another another incident where this came up was the hubble decision and then redecision Right. Yeah. And in that case, it was a question of, and in some sense, you know, the decision not to fix Hubble probably was the right one, but it was so unpopular publicly that NASA actually did decide to risk, not not uh, uh, Sean O'Keefe's NASA, but Mike Griffin's NASA did decide to risk a crew, and the crew was perfectly willing to accept the risk. And they even talked about it and said, hey, this is risky because we're going to Hubble. And if something goes wrong in this flight, we don't have a space station to retreat to or a completely different orbit. Um, you know, so there's some risk, but it, people thought it was worth fixing Hubble. And I, but, you know, the reason that it might have been the wrong decision to do is just because, you know, for the money they spent on that mission, they might have just been able to launch the new, t- new space telescopes. Right, right. That was always a discussion. 
I had somebody ask me recently at a presentation whether we would be bringing Hubble back. And I said, not unless we get something flying the size of the shuttle that uh, that could could potentially do that. And I haven't looked at the cargo capabilities of uh, what's the new the new term, the starship. But yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure the Starship could bring Hubble back. The question is, could it, uh, you know, you'd have to build a cradle for it, yeah. you know, so it didn't, didn't get kind of crushed on, on uh, descent and, and entry Gs and that sort of thing. And, you know, and the, but, uh, no, in theory, it probably could bring Hubble back. In theory, it could probably actually bring Space Station down in pieces. That's true. That's true. But, but it would have to pass the, the NASA safety review. Yes, right. And I think the idea of deorbiting ISS but, you know, by literally deorbiting it, just slowing it down, letting it burn up in the atmosphere is nuts. You know, it's it's should be made a museum. We should take it to a higher orbit. Yeah, keep it keep it in place until until we have the capability to regularly visit it and upgrade it and maybe let people tour it. Who knows? Right. And I, I often point out to NASA, you know, that the reason that they, they have the only national lab that doesn't have public tours because there aren't any motels nearby. Ah, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So now, how did you, how do you think the safety culture grew in NASA to reach this point? It grew because after Apollo, space became not important anymore. It became a jobs program and not something worth risking life on. I, I point out in the book, you're coming up on the 50th anniversary, about a month from now, of Apollo 8. Yep which was when we won the space race. People think it was when we walked on the moon, but it was Apollo 8, because that's when the Soviets realized uh, we're not going to beat them. Because they were, they had been planning to try to beat us to, to doing that. They'd sent the Zond around. Right, Zond 5. Zond 5 with the animals. Yep. And the next step would have been to send a crew around the moon. And Webb didn't want to do it. He left NASA almost 50 years ago. It was I think it was October of 68. And Tom Payne came in, and Payne decided, "Yeah, let's let's do this because we we don't have a lander, we can't really, but you know, we're going to do this test flight of a Saturn V anyway. So let's just, and it's it's capable, it's got everything it needs except a lander to do a lunar mission. Let's send it around the moon on a free return. And 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 doing that, then we can probably beat the Soviets to that. So we won't be have another first, you know, after the first satellite, after the first." man in space after the first man in orbit after the first dba after the first all the, all those firsts that they've been beating us at right one after another um they decided okay let's on the, on the next flight of the saturn V, despite the fact that the previous all-up flight of a saturn V had been a disaster you know they'd they'd had pogo and had structural damage and lost lost a uh, couple engines lost a couple engines after that they looked at the time machine they figured okay what all went wrong and they Figured it all out. We said, okay, we're ready to fly again. And on that flight, they put crew on top of that vehicle, and they sent them all the way around the moon. And today's NASA absolutely could not even consider doing something like that. No. Because it's not important. It's not even important to end our dependence on Putin. Yes, that's uh, that's been a, an ongoing thing. And they, what I love is what happened with this recent Soyuz crew escape that basically Russia said, okay, everything's good. We fixed it. We're ready to fly. And uh, granted, a couple have flown, but if, yeah, if that had been three, SpaceX... Three now, actually, so, yeah. Yeah, if that had been yeah, SpaceX, yeah. it would have been review upon review upon review because NASA right. had that option. Right. 
and they don't yeah they don't uh, they have much more NASA has much more insight into what Boeing and SpaceX are doing than they've ever had into the so into the Russian hardware they just have to all it, all it can do with Russia is basically wave it you know just say well they've been flying a long time and it's 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 a trusted proven vehicle so so they fly but there's no reason to think that that Soyuz is any safer than than Falcon Dragon right now oh have you noticed any difference in the treatment between SpaceX and Boeing on the safety culture as far as no, NASA I I, do, I guess I don't have enough insight to say that I have um, I've certainly seen different treatment in the press particularly at the Wall Street Journal <laughs> well yes by, by Mr. Pastor Mr. you know Mr. Boeing, uh, but in terms of how how the uh, commercial crew office or C three PO or if they're still calling it that uh, is treating the two companies, not that I know of, okay. but you know there are, there's always I'm not saying no, I just say I don't know. Right, right, right. Val- always a valid answer. Dumb, my my response at work is you know dumb looks are still free. As far as steps forward how could you see things changing how could they change well i i hoped when i wrote the book that it would start a conversation and it didn't i mean yeah i love you know we're talking about it and some people in the community are talking about it and even nasa behind you know off the record will talk about it but you know there's never been a hearing on the hill that says are we are we obsessing too much about safety and that's where it has to happen because that, that's where it's coming from. It's, it's Congress coming up with this stupid phrase, safety is the highest priority. Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the committees when they outbriefed, I had a friend who put together a um, – they, they had that star chart thing where they, they had the different, the, the different axes coming out each direction, you know, the things. And they, he, he graphed not flying and showed how that answered – you know, more than some of the other stuff. Right. Now that's the safest thing to do is to not fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as you say that's your number one priority, it's it's safer to not go to the grocery store than to go to the grocery store. Yep. Uh, so, so I guess if there's going to be a resolution to this, I don't see it as a political one. Uh, I don't think Congress is ever going to have that serious discussion because they don't take space seriously and they have not since the end of Apollo. And that's that's a point that I, I often make about Apollo. People think this Apollo was about the moon, it was about space. It was not. It was a battle in the Cold War, and that's why it was important. It was, you know, it was an existential war, and it was seen as a crucial battle. And we were willing to spend a lot of money and take a lot of risk in order to win that battle. Right. You know, it was and and since then, space has simply been unimportant, and it, it's been nothing except a jobs program, to con- as far as Congress is concerned. I mean, they'll may pay lip service to great things they're doing in space. You know, Culberson wanted to to you know do a Europa mission. Yes. Uh, but but he had but he said, oh yeah, but we have to use SLS, uh, even though you'd be crazy to base it to you know premise a mission on SLS. But SL, but SLS, the whole purpose of it is to keep, you know, the funds flowing to the right zip codes. Yeah. So, so we're suffering from zip code engineering because there is no national consensus that actually doing anything useful in space, in terms, at least in terms of human spaceflight, is important. Gotcha. Now, perversely, this idea of being uh, trying to stay safe is actually 
worsening our the safety conditions. Isn't that correct? Yeah, well, probably. The, the point is that we don't, you know, there, again, there is no safe. There is no perfect safety. There's nothing you can do to guarantee that nobody's ever going to die in space on their way in the, you know, in space or coming back. And the example I gave was when I, I was working on as a consultant to a subcontractor to a contract. So I was doing, I was doing some hazard analysis and I, I went through and I, and, you know, we identified not just me, but, you know, I was working with other people. We identified something like the, the launch, of, uh, launch escape system. At the time, I guess it was CEV, and then it was Orion, the old Orion, which became the new Orion. It had it had something like sixty-five ways to kill you on a nominal flight. Ooh, you know, and the most prominent, obvious one is if it doesn't jettison, you die. Right, because of the extra weight, you can't take the extra weight to orbit. Well, not only that, but you can't. But it's you know, it's it's cover. It's you know, you don't have the heat shield. You, you can't. Yeah, but it won't. You only get an orbit, and you. But you, but the chutes won't open. Right, right. I got every, you. You know, that's a. It's a bad thing if you can't get rid of that, and you have to get jettison on every single flight. So so in order to mitigate the hazard of something going wrong on the launch vehicle that would cause you want to get away from it in a hurry, we added this thing that added hazard every single flight. And no, I have never seen to this day uh, a probabilist probabilistic risk analysis, which is, you know, how they're supposed to do such things, PRA, uh, that says, okay, we are, you know, reducing, we are, we are reducing more hazards than we're adding by putting in this system. And the reason is that, A, it was as part of, you know, SLS or Ares 5 or all, Constellation, all that was, as Mike said, it was Apollo on steroids. It was part of the Apollo cargo cult that says NASA, ha if NASA's not building a giant rocket, with a capsule on it, it's not doing what NASA's supposed to do, and and it's got to look like it's got to look vaguely look like Apollo, which you know, obviously SLS is different; it's got the two solids on it, but basically it's the same idea. And and it has the capsule, and it's and and gee, and that thing had an escape tower. On it. We can't can't have a rocket without an escape tower on it. Yeah, that's the way Von Braun built it. Yeah, and. Nobody would want was willing to have to go before NASA and say, "Well, we lost an astronaut because we didn't have an abort system on it." And it never occurred to them that they might have to go before Congress and say, "Well, we lost some astronauts because the abort system failed to jettison." Yeah, that that would be a rough day as well. Uh, okay, for uh, you, you threw in a term there. I know you use a lot. For those of us who aren't familiar with it, could you go into the uh, the cargo cult uh, definition? Yeah, well, it's <clears throat> yeah. Well, a cargo cult. Um, this is a concept that came from anthropologists who were, were studying the Melanesians you know, during world, during and after World War II, where these South Pacific islands, uh, they would all of a sudden they, these are like pre-industrial, not not even civilizations. I mean, they're just pre-industrial tribes, um, and all this is their first confrontation with an industrial modern industrial society. So all these these American and British uh, troops would come in. They would they would you know dock you know dock offshore, and then they would come in. with they build wharves, and then they they'd strip the jungle. They build airfields, and they these giant silver birds would come out of the fly, bringing mana from heaven. You know, canned goods and cigarettes and all this stuff that the that the troops needed, and and also and then the the natives got to, got all this great stuff too, right? So. A few years later, the war is over, and they all go away. 
So all these these people who left here, you know, having seen all this stuff, trying to figure out how do we get the silver birds to come back? And they would actually they would you know build thatch control towers and thatch airplanes and you know because they figured we you know we'll do go through the incantations of you know to make make the all the the ships and the planes come back you know, you know do what what we saw them do right and even NASA's though even though they did and and NASA, and NASA and not just NASA but a lot of people who just think they only understand space in terms of Apollo they think that's the even though it was such an improbable thing and it almost didn't happen they think that's like the natural way for things to happen and they can't conceive of it of people getting into humans getting into space in any other way um, and and it's another phrase for it I came up with with my editor at the New Atlantis a couple of years ago is was Apolloism you know it's 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 a it's a belief you know that this there's one true way to space and it involves NASA owning and operating its own giant rocket and capsule there's no and argument addition- to say that that doesn't work right now well, it hasn't worked in 40 years. Yes, that's, yes. 46 years. 46, so yeah. Last time we went to the moon. Apollo 17. Yeah. So, and any reasonable extrapolation of what SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing, say, you know, what they're doing is has much more likely likelihood of working than what NASA is doing. Because NASA is trying to do Apollo without the Apollo budget. Right, which feeds into the idea of uh, flight rate as well, that if you're trying to fly a booster every two or three years, you're not going to get any sort of regular. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no cadence. There's no tempo. Um, you're going to forget the launch crew is going to forget how to launch it in between flights. Some wag at my blog once said that NASA is building a generational ship, a generation ship, because each, each flight will be crewed by descendants of the, of the, of the previous before. flight. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with aerospace engineer Rand Simberg. Join us for part two of our interview on our next podcast. On behalf of Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.